Pete. It's uh, Saturday, the what, the 21st of November, 2015, and I believe that makes it, and that makes it solder smoke number... 182. 182, here we are. That's what I thought. My calculations were correct. Um, J- just a note here. I-, I received an email from an avid listener and says, yes. just in case you forget, <laughs> the next time you do it, it's 182. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> our, our listeners are watching. <laughs> They're helpful. Yes. They, want to, they want to assist yes. us in our yes. efforts. I, I All right. <laughs> here we are. We're, we're, a little bit, we're a little bit late. That's my. They might have been getting anxious, but here we are, and I'm glad to see you again. There you got your side of smoke cap oh, yeah. on. Oh, yeah. All right. You're in the spirit. I think we should begin with a little travelogue. I told you about this. There, it is vaguely ham radio related and back when we were in italy and and the uk and portugal and all those places people used to like to hear about our travels and since we've been back here uh, on this side of the pond we haven't really had too much to report but i'm happy to say a few weeks ago we went out to uh, the shenandoah national park which is out along the border between virginia and west virginia beautiful park about 100 miles long during the uh, the great depression they decided to to put people to work in part, they, dis- they decided to build this fantastic thing called the Skyline Drive. So there's a range of mountains, the Blue Ridge Mountains, and they just cut a road right along the crest of the whole thing. And there's, so there's this really beautiful road up there now. And they did a great job in setting the whole thing up, but it's it's really nice. And uh, it's about an hour west of here. And a couple and uh, Elisa has been wanting to see it, especially when the leaves are changing color, as they have been here. They're mostly down now, but a few weeks ago they were all in their maximum um, coloration. So out we went, and we took a couple of rides out there, and it was just, just great. We managed to, we did it during the week, so we avoided the crowds. It, it is, this is the connection with Ham Radio. It's along the Appalachian Trail, and many of the, the guys on the QRP list and, and some of the other lists are, are hikers, and they operate uh, mobile from, uh, from, the, from the Appalachian Trail which goes all the way from uh, from Georgia up to the, the, the northern tip of the state of Maine. It's quite quite a thing. And uh, anyway, we went out there, and we were we were walking around, and, and this is the, the part that I thought was, well, there's another, there's another connection to ham radio I'll mention in a minute. But um, while we were there, we went to one of the, uh, like, the ranger stations, and we said, hey, uh, what about bears? We've never seen any bears. And they said, oh, yeah, there's bears all over the place. And then they said, sometimes you see them back over that way. Well, we, we weren't really intending to see the bears. What we really wanted to see was the actual Appalachian Trail. So I said, well, where's the trail? They said, just back in the woods there, maybe, you know, 40 or 50 yards into the woods. So, okay. So we go off from the parking lot. I mean, quite civilized place. It's not like we were out in the wilderness. We left the parking lot. We walked about 50 yards into the woods, and there they were. <laughs> the, the bears? Our furry friends, wow. yes, uh, a, um, a bunch of, uh, of black bears. And uh, my, Elisa, enthralled with the animals, decided that she said we should get really close and take pictures. And I said, no way. <laughs> no, no, no. I've spent enough time in the woods to know better. But So I, I, I managed to keep a distance and got everybody back out of the woods and into the car and off. We went. We ride down the road a little bit further, and we noticed this... This, this young guy kind of on a motorcycle, on a motorcycle, but kind of parked off to the side, and he's looking, and Elise says, I bet you see some bears, I bet you see some bears. So we pull over, and sure enough, he points off into the woods, and there, there's another group right there. Wow. And then a little bit further on, we saw a third group. This place, there's, there's almost more bears there than people. <laughs> wow. This, 
And this all this is another this is the other connection to ham radio, and then I'll stop talking about the bears in the woods, and we'll get on to radios. But uh, there's a a movie out now based on the book A Walk in the Woods by Bill Bryson. Bryson's one of my favorite modern authors. He's an American who married a woman from the UK, and he's lived in the UK for many years. I met him in London once, and he wrote some fantastically funny books, mostly travel books. His most famous book is probably Notes from a Small Island about living in the UK. Um, but he also wrote this book called uh, A Brief History of Just About Everything, which is a look at science, <laughs> all of it. Wow. <laughs> and, and he's not a scientist at all. A compendium. <laughs> a compendium. It's great. It's a page turner. Wow. And the, uh, the, the real British scientist, and I think this might have been Martin Rees who said it, they asked him what he, what he thought about Bryson's book, especially in light of the fact that Bryson is not a scientist. And in a very droll British way, uh, the, the real scientist said, we found it annoyingly free of errors. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. But anyway, I, the, the connection with Ham Radio is actually, quote, I think I quote Bryson in the Solder Smoke book, because he, he talks about how the, uh, the, well, he doesn't use the term, but he talks about how the, the love of tools and technology is an extremely old thing in human history. As a matter of fact, when they go back to the very earliest days, the very first artifacts that they find in caves are, of course, sort of like simple chopping tools that they could use to cut animal skins or to separate the flesh from the skins of the animals. And there was a certain kind of tool that they made that fit their hand perfectly. But the weird thing is they found not only a lot of these tools, but they discovered that guys were making a lot of these things, but like super large versions, right? And it was obvious to them, it was not that they were using this as tools, they were just sort of, they liked the tools. So they were making like large-scale models of the tools, and, and they were tools that would adorn the cave. This might have been like the earliest shacks. It's like, you know, instead of tools, they now today, today we're surrounded by DX40s, DX60s, DX100s. Anyway, good stuff. That's that concludes. Have you been traveling, Pete? Any, have you got no, anything, no, anything to no. report? But but someday I would like to share with you about high technology in a national park. All right. Well, we'll and this has to do with a microprocessor controlled toilet. <laughs> a real a real project I worked on. <laughs> we might day, have to do another a spe- day. Another this day. might have to be a special episode. Yeah, another day. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see. A couple else. Well, one, a couple. Let's see. Let's get right into it. There was one thing I wanted to mention: a, a mighty might, Michigan mighty might update. We've had a number of uh, of a burst of mighty might activity. There was a bit of a lull there during the summer, but I think as the temperatures drop around the country, people return to the shack and they remember, yeah, I was supposed to build that mighty might thing. So they start digging out the crystals that we sent them and the winding coils, and we've had some some big success. Some guys have. Uh, had, if I've experienced J-O-O, we, that, you came up with that one. J-O, what is that? Joy of Oscillation. No, that was you, Joy of Oscillation. But you acronized it, acronymized it. <laughs> J-O-O, yeah. J-O-O, yeah. yes, the Joy of Oscillation has been experienced. Uh, now, I think we may, we, we, without, without mentioning any names, we've got to make some observations about some of the pictures we've seen. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> some of them quite frightening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one thing that, one common thread in a lot of these construction projects is that, the builders don't seem to understand that when you're working with RF, you got to keep everything close together. So you'll see a guy will send us a picture, and they'll be like, 
a little like a breadboard over here with the transistor, the crystal, a couple of resistors, and then like way over on the other side of the table, there's the coil, and over on the other side of the table, there's the variable cap. And you know, I think the circuit is so forgiving that most of the time it works, but if you're doing that, man, you guys guys are pushing the envelope. The, the one I liked though, was the picture you received. The guy used the third hand, you know, the little. Oh, yeah, the, that was good. That was good, and he had everything in the third. I mean, it was all floating in space, but it was short, direct coupled, and it worked. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah. That was cool. It, it works, but I think a lot of times with this parts placement, I think what we're seeing is kind of a carryover from guys who are more accustomed to building stuff in the digital world where very often it doesn't matter. The placement doesn't matter. You're just sending, you know, ones and zeros down the line. The frequencies are not at RF or anything like that. But got to keep those leads short, guys. Keep it all close together because you realize, you know, every time you put one of those long leads in there, you're, in effect, throwing in another inductor. Yeah. It's a lot of capacitance, too. And so it, 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 this circuit is so forgiving and the frequency is quite low. It's all right, but... You know, if you carry on like that, you're going to run into trouble one of these days. You know, uh, you you received a kind of a round of emails. Uh, a particular individual was having a difficulty getting his to oscillate, and he thought it was the crystal. You know, something yeah. we didn't mention. He he may have a dead transistor. I mean, we we never we never went back and said, "Hey, you sure that transistor you're using is good?" The other thing I meant to mention to him uh, is that. That he he also needs to check the pinout on the transistors. Yeah, a lot a lot of guys will assume that it's emitter base collector, but there are transistors out there, even two N twenty two twenty twos of a certain variety. I think if you get a P two N twenty two twenty two or a PN twenty two twenty two, I had that one time. I think when I was building the first BIDX, I assumed that it was the standard emitter base collector when you're facing the flat end of the transistor, but <laughs> it wasn't. And guess what? They don't work too well. No, that no, way. no, no, no. They don't work well. They don't work well. <laughs> you really, you know, you, you you hook up the collector to where the where the base is supposed to be, and it just doesn't amplify or oscillate or anything. It just sits there and kind of looks at you. So yeah, but we'll get these guys all going. And I want to mention we have an offer. Ooh. An offer. We have a benefactor. Ooh. Who? It's like in that TV show, The Millionaire. Oh. The benefactor requests anonymity. Wow. And he has offered up, and I'll, get, I'll try to get through this without, without accidentally mentioning his name. <laughs> Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. I, I, you, you just paused. Yeah, and I know you're, you're, you're so excited. <laughs> I'll, I'll, breathe, I'll breathe hard. I'll breathe hard. Okay. <laughs> Move around a little bit so I can see. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, uh, he, he, our benefactor has noticed that uh, uh, a number of these Michigan Mighty Might projects have been slowed by uh, a, a, a Kind of an inability to get a, get that get their hands on a uh, a variable capacitor of sufficient capacitance, so he has um, about twenty wow. really nice four hundred micro micro farad or for you you know high speed uh, new new technology folks four pico farads yeah. four hundred pico farads variable capacitors, and uh, he wants to contribute. To the, the 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 Michigan Mighty Might Mania, the Color Burst Liberation Army recruitment effort, and so anybody who who meets the requirements of eligibility can get one of these beautiful electronic devices. And I, Pete Giuliano, have been appointed Grand Poobah and Ar- and Arbiter of Eligibility. So I make the call. 
The power is in my hands, my friend. You're the AOE. That's it. AOE. Arbitrary of eligibility. AOE. And Grand Poobah. Yeah. Yes. So, and I, I have established the standards for um, uh, eligibility. One, you have to demonstrate that you need this device for a Michigan Mighty Might project or a Michigan Mighty Might-like project. And uh, so you have to tell us sort of why why you need this part and why it will help you achieve your lifelong dream of experiencing the joy of oscillation. Um, it has to be a for real story. It can't be aspirational. It can't be like, yeah, when I saw your email, I thought that someday in the future I might want to build one of these things. So, yeah, send me one. No, that's not going to do it. We've also asked that people tell us a little bit about their own personal knack story. A little bit. Because from these stories, we'll be able to really determine whether the answer to part one <laughs> was correct. So in the next story, we've asked for the, uh, for the aspirants, the, uh, for the applicants, to, to kind of tell us why they share in our rather strange compulsion to build an almost completely useless 3.579 megahertz, 250 milliwatt oscillator. <laughs> there you go. Why? Why do you want to do yeah. that? I mean, we know why. Yeah. Yeah. And, if you, and if you explain it to us in the right terms, we'll immediately recognize, yes, this guy has a legitimate claim to one of the 400 picofarad variable capacitors. But we'll just know. You'll know. Because we, we, we also feel this compulsion. So it's the kind of thing. This is, I thought they're, they're pretty good, pretty good eligibility tests, oh, don't yeah. you think? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let us know. They're, they're still available. Our uh, benefactor wants to get them out there and get them oscillating and helping uh, produce uh, 3.579 megahertz oscillations. Uh, so let us know. Send me an email. Let us know why you're you're worthy, and then we will uh, we'll we'll make a determination. You know, it'd be helpful, Bill, if they sent you a photo of what they have so far, showing the yeah, missing like, showing the missing capacitor. Then, then, would, then, that, then you, know, would, you know, that's proof. You know. That would be proof good, like, a, like a breadboard with like a, a gaping hole yeah, yeah, where the capacitor is supposed to be, yeah. and with the operator looking kind of yeah, frowny yeah, face. Yeah. yeah, like I wish I had a capacitor. Yeah, proof of now we're not going to make we're not going <laughs> to we're not going to make them make the beer can capacitor no, no, that no, that no. one guy did. Oh, that was really cool. Yeah. But that was cool. But he, I think he could use one too. You know. Anyway, uh, let us know, and uh, we're, we're happy that the Mighty Might project continues. I think we're up to about forty confirmed Mighty Mites now. You know, I got I got to say that this the Michigan Mighty Might, the 3Ms is now colliding with a um another 3M project, homebrew project that I was involved in. And this is why I sometimes might mess it up because now I'm talking to people about another project that I did a while back. Uh, it was Lumicoys Lumicoys Made for the Mighty Midget. Yeah, there you go. So we got Made for the Mighty Midget and the Michigan Mighty yeah, Might. Yeah. I hope you all understand if I sometimes get confused, but that, that we'll talk about the, uh, the the mate for the mighty midget a little bit later. Pete, this now brings us. It's time for bench update, bench and, update. And, and you got a lot more to talk about than I do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. O- over to you, Pete Juliana. What's on the bench? Well, I, I just wanted to share a little story. You mentioned something about the knack, and, and I ran into something yesterday. Uh, my wife was having a medical appointment, and I was talking to the individual there, and she was sharing with us about her seven-year-old son who, who wants to get into robotics. 
and he's reading everything on there. So I said, you know, I said, I'm, I'm going to do you a real favor. So I sent her all these links to where she can buy robotic parts, <laughs> seven years old. And she was telling me about, and, and you know, he was into the computer program. He's taking an advanced computer course because he doesn't want a robot kit, Bill. He wants a scratch build a robot. I said, now there's a, oh, guy, there's a guy with Mac. This guy's got the knack. He's, He's got like the, the cartoon. Yeah. You got? Did, did you show her the cartoon? No, I didn't. You, know, you got? No, no. You, you got to show her the cartoon, the video, yeah. the video where where Dilbert's mother takes him to he the doctor. Said, I don't want a kit. I want to build it <laughs> from scratch. Seven years old. <laughs> So, I know. Oh, yeah, so. he, he's got it. Yeah, he's got, he's got, he's it. got the neck. Oh, I man. recognize that, yeah. Oh. You know, I got an e- on that, I got an email. I don't know if you saw it, but from uh, KB3SII, Steve Silverman. And he was talking. He recounted about how he built, from scratch, a modulator. Yeah. I think for his AC1 transmitter. He built a modulator for that from scratch. He was 11 years old. An eleven-year-old kid. I mean, this is this is almost. I told him. I said, "You're approaching almost Giuliano levels of, uh, you know, of, of homebrew." At a young age. <laughs> yeah, really. Because uh, you, you you were playing around with the CK. What was 722? it? Seven twenty-two. How old were you? Uh, about that same age. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, All right. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, well, that's great. Yeah, send that young man of soldering. Yeah, on. yeah, that's <laughs> really cool. Okay, bench update. Well. I want to share a couple of uh, projects that I have on the bench, but they're actually extremely related. Uh, the, the two projects are related to each other. But I also want to make a comment uh, about, and I'm going to cover this in the bench update, about an email I received yesterday because we had mentioned something about uh, I had bought this $6 bag of 1,200 capacitors or something like that. And, you know, I said by the time I got them, they weren't any good. And this individual said, well, you know, uh, to start off with, capacitors have tolerances on them. And, you know, the, some are plus 20, minus 30. And, and if you got to look at a nominal 100 picofarad capacitor, that, that's a pretty big spread. So I think that that's one uh, thing that I think is really important that our homebrewers think about is look at the quality of the parts you're putting in there. Sometimes, and I mentioned to them that I had a 220 picofarad capacitor that I measured, and they were 100 picofarad. (laughs) And if this was in a frequency-dependent circuit, you're going to find that that 100 picofarad is not going to, not going to, if it's in a low-pass filter or band-pass filter, you're going to be way off. So, you know, just, you got to use a little sense and you got to watch that stuff. Some of that really inexpensive hardware is factory rejects because they failed the quality test. You know, the guy says, okay, yeah, I got a bag of 220s and they aren't anywhere near that. And you plug them in the circuit and wonder why it's not oscillating or why the filter is not working. So, you need to pay a little attention to that, especially. And you need to have you need to have that little piece of test gear, yeah, that, that yeah. LC meter. Yeah, yeah, because otherwise you're going to be chasing your tail and not not understanding why. Which then brings us to the two projects that I have on the bench since our last podcast, and how I've used LT Spice on both these projects. And this is really, really <laughs> important, and and I really encourage uh, our listeners to download LT Spice and to use that because it's a really powerful tool. And, and you can do 
some of the things uh, that I just talked about with you change the capacitor values, you can see what happens. Okay, if I put a, a 100 in there instead of a 220, what's that going to do to the circuit? So the first thing that I'm, I want to talk about is I'm a real sucker for looking at eBay and seeing radios in there that aren't too much money, and I say, you know, I can make that work. Can I mention something? Sure. Hold on, i got to jump in. You mentioned LT Spice. I was going to mention this later, but I love LT Spice, and I agree with you 100%. It's an amazing tool. You can do it for kind of get a reality check to see if yeah. what you're thinking about should work theoretically, but you got to really kind of learn a little bit about how the, the, the whole program works, and for me, the best guide to that is something written by Nick Kennedy, WA5BDU. If you go and just search Nick Kennedy, WA5BDU, you'll come to his Beginner's Guide to LT Spice. Download it. Print it. Keep it next to you when you're using it. It'll save you a lot of time. And we're going to talk about Nick a little bit later because he was on Eric's show, yeah, USO yeah. Today. Well, you know, it's interesting. Earlier you mentioned about 400 micro-micro-farads <laughs> or 400 picofarads. So I was doing the LC Spice, and I entered 100 microfarads, MFD, like I, learned, you you I thought I did, <laughs> like I learned 50 years ago. Well, guess what? MFD is not <laughs> microfarads in Spice. It, you times have changed. Yeah, times have changed. So you can really, you got to be really, I mean, your old habits just carry over, and you can't do that at the convention. So uh, I cover that. So anyway, I found this 10-tech commercial transceiver. It's called Auto oh. 150A, and this transceiver is a single sideband transceiver that was made for primarily use overseas, and it was an eight-channel crystal-controlled transceiver that operated in the 8 to 12 megahertz range. And uh, supposedly, it has the functionality of both upper sideband and lower sideband. It came with an option of a noise blanker. came with an option of CW. And uh, I, I got it for about 100 bucks. And I said, you know, even if I salvage the parts out of there, if the RF amplifier stays good, that's a 100-watt RF brick, not a lot of money. So I got the rig, and I discovered that uh, the lower sideband uh Crystal, I mean, crystal filter was not present. That was an option because it was standard upper side band. So anyway, in looking at it, I did a lot of uh, head scratching, noodling, saying, what would I need to change? What would I need to do? <clears throat> and I discovered that uh, LT Spice came into play because they had a lot of networks in there. You, you did a little programming with the selector switch to select one of four bandpass filters, low-pass filters, so that you could put it in the proper range. Uh, the normal ranges are 2 to 3, 3 to 5, 5 to 8, and 8 to 12. And I wanted to actually extend that to uh, 14 megahertz so we, we could have 20 meters on there. So the manual is available from um, Tentech. You just go download the manual, and I looked at all the networks, and I put them in LT Spice, and then I said, what do I have to change? And so I was able to fine-tune the networks to actually take the 8 to 12 band and move that up to 14 megahertz. And then there were some intermediate circuits in there where they, they specifically on, on the crystal, used the crystal oscillator. They limited it. Uh, they had a bandpass filter on the, on the output so that you couldn't go above 12. So I had to change that. So there's a whole bunch of intermediate networks. But it was an easy job with LT Spice. <laughs> Put the network in there, <laughs> see what it does. And sure enough, 
when you when you did it in LT Spice, you could see where the cutoff frequencies were. You could see precisely where it is. So it was a very powerful tool. So the good news is, I wanted to go back to podcast 169, which was on December the 6th of 2014. And we talked about, I came up with a keypad to enter frequencies into an Arduino with an SI5351. So I said, someday I'm going to build a transceiver <laughs> with a keypad. So guess what? Someday showed up on the Tentex. So I've got a little external box, a remote control panel with a keypad. Got a little 8x2 digital display. Got the encoder. So I punch one, and it goes on 80 meters. I punch two, and it, I'm sorry, one is 160, and you're going to talk about 160 meters. <laughs> two is 80 meters. Three is 60 meters. Four is 40 meters, uh, five is 30, and six is 20. And then a couple of the other buttons, I can actually up and down electronically tune, so I don't have to turn the encoder. I just hold the button down, and it skews up. Hold another button, it skews down. So something that I learned and developed a year ago and now come into play. The other thing I learned, the two uh, bills on the keypad, is normally, uh, like, for instance, with Rich's AD7C's um, DDS software, uh, he has all these selections. You can do 10 hertz, 50 hertz, 100 hertz, 5 kilohertz, 2.5 kilohertz, 1 megahertz, you know, etc. these step, step values. So with the push-button encoder, so, so many of those, you don't want to go through that range all the time. So essentially on this, I set up just three ranges, so it normally tunes at 100 hertz, uh, 1 kilohertz, and 10 kilohertz, but two of the buttons on the keypad, if I want to tune 10 hertz, I push one of the buttons, and now... It puts the code in there, so as you tone the encoder, it, it tunes 10 hertz. Another button on the keypad, push it, and it's 100 kilohertz. So I took it out of the realm of the encoder push button and made it selections on the keypad, which makes it kind of nice. So things that you can piggyback, you know, from something that was done previously, you can make it very, very easy. Now, that the one problem I had is it didn't have the lower sideband filter. And I want to take one second here to talk a bit about some of the differences that you see with commercial equipment versus that for the amateur market. Tentech made this commercial transceiver. So did Kachina. Now, those of you may recall, Kachina had one of the first computer-controlled transceivers. They're no longer in business. They got out of that market. But most of those commercial transceivers are very like the Drake lines. They used actually two separate crystal filters. They used uh, an upper and lower sideband filter and kept the BFO frequency constant. You know, a lot of the FedEx yep. radios, if you want to change upper sideband, lower sideband, you've got to shift the, the BFO frequency because you've got a single filter. Most of these commercial radios use two filters, an upper sideband filter and lower sideband filter. And as it turned out, uh, the lower sideband was m missing, so that kind of ruined things for 160 and, and, and 80 and 40 meters. Uh, it's okay for 60 meters and 20 meters because they use upper sideband there. So anyway, um, I tried to trace down finding a filter, and, and I wasn't very successful. And then I talked to uh, <clears throat> the guys who actually made the filter, the companies in Network Sciences in Arizona. And the guy was... Who, who worked on this project for both Tentec and Kachina, because they used the same uh, basic filter scheme, 12 megahertz. He said, you know, if you shift the BFO, he said, that upper sideband filter will work on lower sideband. <laughs> I said, okay, I know how to do that. Yeah, we were, 
We know that one. We know that one. So I just have a uh, – there's a panel switch that says upper and lower sideband. It's just a contact closure, and I've made that an input into the Arduino. So I was able to shift the frequency down so that it – or up, as the case may be, because they invert the sideband. So I can now, with a single – the upper sideband filter, now operate upper and lower sideband. And then I discovered the the lower sideband really sounds terrific because I used an external oscillator to actually find the correct frequency for the BFO. But I noticed on upper sideband, which was supposedly 12.7 megahertz, it just didn't sound right. So I put the oscillator there, and I found that that filter must have aged. So I, I dropped it to 200 hertz, and now it's it's smart, it's smack on. <laughs> you know, when you wow. listen to upper sideband, you listen to the lower sideband, smack on. So I just changed the code, <laughs> you know. So now, so now it's, it operates upper room. And I consistently get really good audio reports. They said, that thing really, really sounds good. So all I'm trying to say is you can take some of these older radios, even a commercial radio, and take something like the SI5351 with a keypad <laughs> and do all sorts of things. And now I've got a really nice radio because – Mine happened to have the noise blanker in it, and boy, that was, that's really nice to have that noise blanker because the guy next door to me has a, a 59 Chevy truck <laughs> that he's always tuning up, <laughs> and I can hear it. Put the noise blanker on, and it's gone, you know. So I'm just encouraging people to just think a little bit about seeing some of these really great radios that are available for not a lot of money. And yet, at the same time, taking some of the technology with the SI5351 and being able to embody that within the radio, and now you suddenly have another radio that works really, really well, and you don't have much money invested. The Arduino, 20 bucks. <laughs> 20 bucks for the Arduino, the display, and the SI5351, $100 there, and some time with Spice. And I kind of documented this on the blog a little bit. There, there's a much more detailed paper that... I've written. I may may publish that. But the thing is, uh, all I'm trying to share is that you can use a tool like that. What made that possible was the LT Spice to change the frequencies. Because yep. I had to change some of the filters, you know, the band pass yep. filters and the low pass filters. And I just went and simulated it. And I could see I had the standard of what, because all the values are available on the 10 tech schematics. I had the values. So I said, okay, this is the stock. <laughs> now, what am I changing? And how does that change? And it and what I changed was spot on, and it was all a result of LT Spice. So, oh man, I, it's it's an amazing tool. Yeah, yeah, and and it, it's not that difficult to to learn how to use it. Now, it's so good. It's so good, Pete, that I've actually had dreams where <laughs> I build the whole, I build the whole thing in the computer. Like I build the whole double sideband transceiver in the computer, and then I start figuring out how I could do the interface out of the computer and send it to the antenna. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can do that, yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, I had, and which now I want to shift to the simple siever, which is currently up on the on the blog. Uh, I I hadn't done this because I just did it in pieces, but and then I built the hardware and I knew it worked. But one guy said, you know, I took your schematic from here and schematic from there, and I put them together, and he says it actually works. I said, yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> I know it works. <laughs> I said, it works. It works. Both in theory and in practice. Yeah, yeah. I said, it works. He said, yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, but, I mean, the business, real quick, I just wanted to comment. The business about, you know, sometimes they'll say the filter's a lower sideband filter, and then guys will think, well, I can only use it in that application. Really, the only difference is that the skirt on one side is a little bit different from the skirt on the other side. 
But as you said, if you if you play around a little bit with the placement of the BFO or the carrier right. frequency, it, it's fine. It might not be optimal. It might be a little bit better if you did it the other way. But I switched the BFO frequency on both sides of the filter when I was doing my BIDX 2040, and I did it just by I had a little relay that would, uh, when I went from one right. band to the other, would change the network on the the regular oscillator there. So I had the same the same crystal but I was able to change it from above or below, and I was able to move it sufficiently that with just one crystal, one, in one case it would be capacitive, and in one, the other case it would be inductive, and it would move it from one side to the other. And that was actually kind of cool, oh, I thought. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, just in passing here, I wanted to comment a, a little more about, uh, before I talk about the simple Sieber, about what, what's done in the military realm. Uh, actually, in trying to track down the lower sideband filter, I actually found a ham that worked at Kachina <laughs> that was working on on some of the military radios and he shared with me something interesting and and he sent me a schematic uh, of how one of these uh, radios went together with the with the upper and lower sideband filter he said you know he said these things ended up in Pakistan and Indonesia and he said the the power sources aren't real good he said so guess what we put voltage regulators in there, so everything operates at 8 volts. He said because we figured that you'd have sagging line voltage, that while you had a 12-volt supply, <laughs> you probably weren't going to see 12 volts. He said, so he said, we took that into account in the design, because I said, why would you pick 8 volts to, to put, on, <laughs> put on there? He said, because you could never believe what was in there. He said, we get some of these radios back from the field from Indonesia and Pakistan, and he said they'd have sand in them. <laughs> he said, yeah. you know, you open up and pour the sand out. He said, so, you know, once you build something on a line, you kind of think it's going to end up in somebody's shack, but it, it may not. It may end up in a sand pile somewhere, you know. Wow. Yeah, so. You know, I, yeah, I mean, and it's really cool that you were able to get reach back and talk to the engineers who actually worked oh, yeah. on it. They must have been they must have been quite uh, quite pleased to find somebody still working on the gear. Yeah, well, this this guy's a ham, so he, you know, he said, "Yeah, hey, yeah, that'll work, that'll do it." So uh, I, I've got I've got a, another transceiver on the boards here, using upper and lower sideband crystal filters, and I think it's gonna uh-huh. I think it's gonna work. You'll see that coming. Okay, now to the simple receiver. So if people have been following along on the blog, I've tried to include a lot of the spice simulations, the schematics. And I've also tried to include uh, what you see, the projected output that comes from the spice simulation, but also the real output. And one of the things that I worked on was um, uh, the bandpass filter, 40-meter bandpass filter. Okay, so I went in to um, solid-state design of the radio amateur, went into the back, pulled out a stock catalog, uh, bandpass filter and said, all right, let's, let me start with that. that. That's a good place to start. So then I put that in there, and then I did some fine-tuning. First of all, I wanted to come up with inductance values that were standard number of turns. I mean, sometimes when you come up with an inductance value, you got 14.27 turns. <laughs> you know, what do you do with that 2.7? So I said, okay, Let's switch everything to 14 turns and then see what I have to do to adjust the, the circuit value. And so I, I simulated the filter. I got the plots in there. And then I built it. And then I, I, I took a, uh, a 9850 signal generator and put, you know, terminated it properly and put my scope across it. 
and you can see all the plots, and you can you can see the frequencies where it'll pass and where it stops. And I mean, it's just it matches the simulation. So I, I think the the power is the simulation. You can set the computer without soldering your fingers together and finding out if this thing works. Then when yeah. you go to build it, you say, look, that's what the performance should be. Why am I not seeing that level of performance? So it's very, very powerful. So all that information is up on the blog. That's fantastic. You know, and because you're right, because if you if you don't have the simulation, you don't you don't you don't when you you build it and it doesn't work, it could be one of two things. It could be that the design that you're using will never work, even if it's built perfectly, yeah. or that you messed up when you built it. But if you run it through LT Spice and it shows that at least in theory, at least in the simulation, it's supposed to work. If it's not working, it's more likely that you messed up. When you yeah, built it. yeah. Well, we had a couple of rounds of emails this past week, and I, or since the last podcast, and I shared with you, I, I got the standard: your audio amplifier doesn't work. <laughs> you know, I went through, yeah, 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 right. So then, after going round and round, uh, I got an email. Well, I found a cold solder joint. Now it's working right. Well. Yeah, yeah. You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't have any cold solder joints in the LT simulation. Yeah, right, right. You know, so the, these are the things. But let me also share with you that I've do, I've done a little work uh, on some of the circuits to um, to do things like changing voltage, and and this is where I think we were lulled into thinking, oh well, I've got. I've got a 9-volt battery. I'm going to put the 9-volt battery in here instead of the 12-volt supply. How many times people have done it? So, yeah, i got a 9-volt battery or i got a 9-volt DC supply. I was really surprised. And what I'm going to do, Bill, is I'm going to put this 12 megahertz amplifier using the J310s. But you can, you can simulate. You're going to have to go through a process to download the, the factors for the J310. As a matter of fact, on one of the blog uh, entries. Our, our good friend in the UK, Tony uh, G8. I'm sorry, Nick uh, G8INE said sent me a link on how to download all, all the parameters for the J310 and, and a whole bunch of others. You got to be careful. Sometimes when you download that, it's like pulling the lever on the hopper. <laughs> you know, three tons of data come down. So I, I kind of limited to just what I was putting in there. But you can do this with the 2M3819s, which which are stock. Uh, if you don't go through the process of finding the parameters for the J310. And the thing is interesting is if you put 12 volts on there, you get 18 dB a gain. If you put 9 volts on there, it drops down to about 9 dB. That's half. <laughs> That's half. So you got to be really... That's half the dB, but, but a no, lot more than half the power. No, well, it's, 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 no, it goes from 18 to 9. That's 9 dB with just 3 volts difference. Yeah, so so what I'm saying is, you know, you put the 9-volt battery in there and say, oh, yeah, that works. But, gee, it doesn't seem as, as good. Well, convince yourself by putting some voltage values. And then some. I had this brilliant idea. I, I'm, I've gone through a rash of owning phones. i got a box of telephones here, you know, that somehow just don't have all the features. But they got all these neat 3.8-volt 2-amp batteries in them, you know. And I said, okay, let's, let's build... I was thinking about a thing called a cell receiver. <laughs> you know, you take parts of a cell phone and you build a receiver out of principally the power supply. Well, at 3.8 volts, that circuit <laughs> doesn't do anything. So, so you have to be really careful about the source voltage, and you need to convince yourself about if you if you don't put 
the right amount of voltage on there, you, the gain is going to suffer. I mean, th these things become gain dependent. So, um, w what would you do? I, I would say that if you want to make these things bulletproof, especially if you're going to operate in the field, I put 10 volt regulators in there, and I'd set all the gains with 10 volts. So as your battery voltage starts to drop, your performance is not going to drop. But I'm going to put a circuit up there for a 12 megahertz amplifier with the with the J310s uh, on the block, and you can play with it. Make, yeah. make it just exactly like this, and you'll see uh, kind of the differences. The other thing that I did is I came up, uh, you know, we do a lot with inductive matching. You know, we'll do a lot with transformers, okay, some yep. turn ratio. Well, you know, you can do it with capacitance match, too. Yep. So this one tank circuit has got two capacitors in series and, and across an inductor, and that's how I'm building this amplifier. And what's really interesting is... If you make the capacitors the same value, you get the highest gain. But if you take the equivalent capacitance, like if you had two 50 picofarads in series, that's a 25 picofarad capacitor across the tank. The other way you can do it is take 25 in series with a 1500. Well, it's per, pretty much a 25 because they're in series. But you'll find where you put that 1500, if you put it in the upper part, and, and take the tap off or put it in the lower part, you get two different gain levels. That's because right. the cap capacitance divider is different from the collector right. or the drain side, okay? No, no, it's, a, it's almost like a resistive voltage. Yeah, yeah. Depends on where you put yeah, it. You yeah. put the tap. Yeah, yeah. Right? So these are things that you can play with. So I think in, in practice, people say, yeah, put it right there. <laughs> you know, and I say, hey, this thing doesn't work with crap. But spice let you see the effects of if you change it this way in the voltage divider or you change it this way in the voltage divider and, and where is it next to the, the drain of the of the JFET. So this is the power of the simulation tool and it keeps you out of trouble and you learn a lot. And the other thing that we're attempting to do is use a common template like the product detector circuit with the J310s that's almost the same as the RF amplifier as the IF amplifier. There's some circuit changes. There is nothing wrong with doing that. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. And if you can tune the parameters, you can get the gain levels that you need. Like the IF amplifiers are going to be very similar to the TIAs in terms of stage gain. Uh, they're typically now at 18, 18 dB. And you can change that by changing that capacitive voltage divider instead of changing the resistors. Okay. So I'll put that up there with some little explanation, and they can download Spice, put that circuit there, have a chance to play with it, change the voltage. On on one of the uh, postings that I made, I showed uh, the impact of the capacitors and what they did to the frequency response. This is on the product detector. If you have a lower value here across the, the source, you have a higher value. What does that do to the frequency? And you can see the plots. So it's it's very useful to to simulate that. So, you know, before you reach in the junk box, say, look, I don't have a 10 microfarad. I have a 1. <laughs> I'm going to put that in there across that source resistor. Well, let me tell you, it's going to infect the, the low, low frequency response. And that you can see with Spice. So that's what I'm doing. Cool. Right. Yeah, and right, right now we got the simple siever is pretty much all the circuits have been simulated not all the hardware is built and and each I, I try to upload we're at the second generation you can hear that 
and you can download that. And we're, we got the third in work. I got a new crystal filter, four pole crystal filter in work with the amplifier. So we're, we're moving along with the, with the design. We're moving along with the pieces. And I, you know, every couple of days I try to update the, uh, the blog with that information. Now, check out the blog, guys, because a lot of good new information there. Pete, just if you could, tell us a few, a little bit about the J310s and your decision to go with the J310s. Because I know that you were looking at other, other yeah. kind of JPETs. Or yeah. At, well, what happened there? Well, let me tell you. Um, I've seen the J310s in um, publications where people have used them. And I'm saying, well, why did they use that instead of a 2 and 3819? And so I took the same circuit and put the 3819s in, put the J310s in, and it's good for 3 dB gain more. <laughs> and I'm saying, okay, you know, 3 dB, all I do is change the change what device you're going to put in there. So I think the J310s, it's a, it's a VHF, UHF, JFET. So it has some really, you know, good properties that you could you could use this thing and not be concerned that you're going to reach the, the upper frequency limit of it. So that was a factor. It's a higher gain device than the 2N3819s. And I got a bag of 50 of them that I paid less than 20 cents a piece for. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. And you're, you know, I, I remember look, I looked at the circuit. It's been a little bit of, since I've looked at it, but... You're taking two of these and, in effect, making a dual-gate MOSFET out of them, right? Right, right. In, Which is pretty cool. They're in cascode. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to know to note that uh, in the product detector on gate two, you, you introduce the BFO signal. In the IF amplifier stage, you put a, a fixed bias on it, and, and actually you can change that bias, and, and you can gain control. So you could they, – they're, they're sitting there ready to take AGC or ALC. Mm. So I mean, you, you're getting you're, you can even put a manual gain control in there if you want for getting really fancy here, Pete. Oh, yeah. AGC, holy cow! Oh, this is, yeah. this is you know, I'm a, I'm a bit X guy. We you know that's that's a that's a level of sophistication <laughs> yeah. kind of. We don't get into that, yeah. you know. Well, the thing that surprised me that one of the um, one of the videos up there uh, on the blog, this thing is really quiet between stations. I mean, you tune on a signal, <laughs> it jumps at you, and I'm saying, man. That's got some really good noise figures in terms yeah. of internally generated noise. So, I mean, we we may be onto something here. I mean, they're going to obsolete them. Obviously, is what's going to happen. But uh, we'll have to buy them all yeah, up. Yeah, well, get a lifetime supply. What, twenty twenty cents a piece. That's not going to break the bank. I did that one time with four hundred six seventy three. Yeah. When I went when I found out they were going out, I went out and bought. I got a whole box full of them here. Yeah. Well, you can plug them or, or some equivalent. Actually, I I find that. They're better devices than a 40673, so don't lament that you don't you don't have the BF99. No, if you go to surface mount, the BF991 is a better device. It's hotter. I know, I know but it's a nostalgic oh, kind of emotional yeah. connection. It's yeah. all those Doug Moore rigs. So that all right, I, I well, took fantastic. a lot of took a lot of time, but check. The no, no, no. You got you, well, like I said, you got lots of report, and your your discussions of the conversion of the Tentec rig. Got me thinking about conversions and converting something and doing something different. And I remember that at a, at a recent Hamfest, I picked up, um, I you know, a little CB transceiver. I mean, how could you resist? It was five bucks. It looked good, you know. And I figured there was some good parts in it. So what the heck? I took it off the guy's table. I brought it home. It's been sitting in the in the in the junk box here for the whole time. And so then I figured, well, you know, conversion. Yeah, that'd be kind of fun. And so I started poking around. I opened the thing up. And man, it had this horrible electronic smell in there. It actually, gave me a headache. <laughs> yeah. I had to air it out. But uh, 
Um, anyway, I, I discovered just real quick that it's a it's a very common. There's one kind of board that that appeared in all kinds of different varieties of CB rigs, They're all different brands. Many of them use the same. I think they called it a CyberNet board, and it had a little two crystal phase lock loop oscillator that they used as a synthesizer. And as you turned the uh, the switch for all the different uh, channels on the thing, it was combining in various ways the various frequency outputs from the two different crystal oscillators, and that's how they got the channelized, you know, how many or many channels they had on there. What I was really pleased to discover was that there were some ingenious hams out there who figured out how with just snipping a few wires, you could change it so that the output on those channels would all be in the amateur 10-meter band. And then all you had to do was go in through the rest of the transceiver and peek and tweak some of the LC circuits in there, and then away you would go. And as we as we say here at Sour Smoke, Bob's your uncle. Yeah. And, you know, you, then you're on 10-meter you're on AM. So I have not done that. It's over there on the bench. I may do it at some point. What, I'm somebody looking, just I'm looked lo- in? Lo- no, I'm looking at it. Is that it? I'm looking at it. Yeah, it's just it. Pete's looking over my shoulder here yeah, on Skype. Yeah, there it is. Over there, yeah, waiting for me. But, but, this was the inspiration for not just 10 meter AM. One of the reasons I haven't done it is that um, 10 meters is pretty much dead. But AM is not dead. And this, you're, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I was in a bit of a rut. You know, I, okay, I finished the BitX transceiver. Then I finished another BitX transceiver. And then, at your insistence, I finished a third <laughs> BitX transceiver. All right, enough's enough. Basta, Basta with the BitX yeah. transceivers. Yeah, I know. It was uh, it, it was getting kind of repetitive. I, mean, I had fun with all of them, but kind of you, you start looking for something new to do. Sometimes in ham radio, you get the urge to do something different. And one of the great things is that there's always something different to do. Maybe it's something you did before, but you haven't been doing it in a long time. So anyway, I kind of was sitting here one morning, and I was thinking about conversions, and I was thinking about AM, and I looked over in the corner, and they're looking kind of in need of attention was the DX100 transmitter that John Zaruba, K2ZA, had given me a few years back. It had been his dad's rig. He, he loved the rig. He wanted to give it a good home. He drove all the way down from New Jersey, he and his wife, to give us this rig. It's beautiful. It's been sitting there. And I had it at various points matched up with the HQ100 receiver that I had from the Dominican Republic. Anyway, in need of something to do, I kind of hooked it up, dusted it off, hooked it up to the, on Veterans Day, I hooked it up to my, my, my dilapidated 40-meter dipole, and, man, I put that thing on the air on 40-meter AM. It's beautiful. It's a thing of beauty. People love the sound of it. I have it hooked up with the D104. And i got to tell you, I, I, I really have enjoyed this return to 40-meter AM because the, the, the guys that you meet there, the conversations that you get into, I have to say, as much fun as 17 and 40 and 20 sideband is, this is a, a whole different league of technical expertise. Um, I, I would say the majority of people that you run into there are running usually refurbished old boat anchor tube type gear that they know a lot about. And when you talk to them about it, they know what's inside. They've been inside the rig. They've worked on it. They've modified it. They've fixed it. They've repaired it. There's a you, there's an obvious level of technical familiarity with the innards of the rig that, that you just don't find 
with most of the guys that you talk to on the sideband frequencies. I, I hate to say that, but it's the truth. But the other thing is that you run into quite a few guys who are running homebrew gear. I mean, and so I mean, it's as as we've said before, it's quite shocking on the sideband frequencies. It's only happened to me, I think, a few times where the other guy said, it, "You know, rig here is homebrew," but on the AM frequencies, it happens. And I've had it happen a number of times since I've been there. So I've really been enjoying 40-meter AM. But then, yeah, I did 40-meter AM before. Then I'm sitting there. I'll actually have the rigs set up so that I stand when I'm talking because you feel like a broadcaster. Stand there, you know. Tim Sutton sent us those wonderful aluminum boxes. Yeah. And I'm going to – they're going to turn into rigs. Don't worry about it, Tim. But, But for now – I used one of them to support my D-104 so I could stand there, just like in the old days of broadcast radio. And, and, and I could, as they say in, in AM, I could make one, make a transmission. An old buzzard transmission, that's what they call them. And uh, anyway, uh, I've really, really been enjoying that. And, but as I was standing there, I was thinking, gosh, this is fun. But I've done this before. I'm really looking for something new. And then I looked down, I looked down at the DX-100, and on the band switch level, switch down there, all the way to the left with the numerals one six zero. And I looked up at the at the DX at the HQ one hundred receiver from the Dominican Republic, and the tuning range on that <coughs> receiver was all the way down to five hundred kilocycles, five forty kilocycles. <coughs> it includes the one hundred and sixty meter. The gentleman's band. Top band. Top band. Top, top, top band. band, yeah. Have you ever been on top band? No. Neither have I. And we, we you and I probably have about a hundred years in ham radio between. <laughs> yeah. I'm not <laughs> kidding. Yeah, no, really. We do. We do. Pretty close. Yeah. Well, if you throw Steve Silverman in, we're we're definitely yeah, over we're, one. Yeah, yeah. We're 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 approaching 150, 140, 150 years. And none of the three of us have ever transmitted on these frequencies. There's something wrong about that, Pete Giuliano. There's something deeply wrong about that. And this winter, I don't know if you realize it or not, but you are going to be part of an effort to correct this situation. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> are you in? I'm in. All right, I'm in. Steve is in. And um, anyway, when I looked at these, when I looked at the, the band switches on these rigs, a new acronym came to mind. TRGHS. T-R-G-H-S. The radio gods have spoken. There you go. There you go. The radio gods have spoken. On to 160. All right. I'm making plans. This is not just a pipe dream. This is for real. So you're not going to do sideband. You're going to do AM. Right. I'm going to do AM. Just to clarify for our listeners. AM. Uh, AM. We're going to go AM. I'm going to use the DX100. Anyway. uh, You're going to force me to build a transmitter. Well, you got a KX3 there, my friend. Yeah, yeah. It has an AM button yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll work. That'll work. That's what Steve Silverman's thinking yeah, about using. Yeah, that'll work. I just there need to go. build an amplifier for it. Maybe not. Maybe not. You know, oh, you've been, you know. That, that's that's a little hard here. Not, I don't it, have a really good antenna. You're gonna need a little a little more juice in there. Well, you know, the Brits use 160 at very low power levels during the day for local ground wave kind of rag chews, chin wags and all that. And I've seen some of the designs. There's one design that they have very popular called the Chatterbox. It's an AM transmitter 
but it's very low power. Now, I think I'm going to be very happy with my uh, output from the dual 6146s in the uh, in the DX100, but uh, it's not necessarily not necessary anyway. But uh, but but anyway, I think with the KX3, well, I'm sure you've got an amplifier laying around there someplace. I, I do. I just need uh, to put a set of finals in and get a filter. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're there. Right. We're there. But, but you know, but with you and with me, and, and to a certain extent with Steve, although he's going to have a a better location for it, the showstopper on 160 is often the antenna. Yeah. It's big. <laughs> Those wavelengths, just think about it, 160 meters. You know, you need an antenna for half wavelength. You've got to be an antenna about 80 meters, right, 80 yards. What's the <clears> point? No, he, Steve was saying that uh, his main QTH is near a Navy transmitting station. Yeah, yeah, but I think his, but he's got a big size. Uh, I mean, he's got some space up there. He's, I mean, Steve splits, splits his time between New York City uh, and, and the state of Maine, and uh, – so I think when he gets up to Maine, he's going to have plenty of room. But he is concerned because there's some sort of low-frequency, high-powered transmitter. There's one in the state of Washington, too, yeah. also. And it wasn't yeah. very far from where I used to live. And, and the first time I lived in Washington, I, I could actually hear that station. I, I had a homebrew receiver I built. Yeah. And, boy, you'd hear that. They, oh, it was high-speed data. You know, you couldn't decode it or anything. But, you, you, you know, all of a sudden you tune across 24 kilohertz. <laughs> Yeah, but you you know you get you'll fire up that LT spice and you'll make up some fantastic <laughs> yeah, filters goes, that'll just knock, they'll knock the U.S. Navy right out of the yeah, band. Pack. They 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 have uh, another station at Northwest Northwest Cape in Australia. You know what we'll call that when you build that filter when you and you send one to Steve we'll call it the substopper. Substopper, yeah. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right. Um, so, but anyway, my antenna solution, and I've been studying this. I've been noodling on the antenna problem. And I've come up with what I think I'm going to do here. I'm pretty sure. I'm going to go with a, a quarter wave inverted L shot up into the trees. And I'm for the ground, I'm going to take a, a six or eight foot um, copper ground pipe, knock it into the dirt. I have this uh, tool shed out in the backyard. And that's going to be the base point for the antenna. I'm going to put out Maybe four radials, maybe four quarter wave radials. Two of them I could stretch out across the fence on the perimeter of the property. I could put, put one or two diagonally across the property. So I'll have four radials down and a quarter wave up in a kind of inverted L. And I gotta, I'm gotta have a little simple antenna tuner there at the base. And that's what I'm gonna run. And uh, there's a couple articles out there by Doug DeMaw and others who Say that this will be a, a fairly effective antenna for for 160 meters. I had thought about other other solutions about you know putting loading coils on an 80 meter dipole, or taking an 80 meter dipole and feeding it with with uh, open wire line and everything else. It all just got more and more complicated. Simplicity is a virtue. So I don't know what do you think about that antenna? Yeah, that'll work. But I was just trying to mentally calculate the radials at. Uh a quarter wavelength on 40 meters is like uh, 33 feet, so you'd be 60. So 120 yeah, 120 feet. feet. So I could do it. Yeah. I could do it if I run it along the base of the, you know, the, the 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 fence around the property. I could definitely do it. Well, you could improve that. It would not work with the XYL, but you could improve that signal tremendously if you used an elevated ground plane. Yeah, but then I'd have to move. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I'd get thrown out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, that's no, honestly, honest, no. She, she was, she would, she would support me 100. percent But I just wouldn't do it. No. So anyway, I think that's what we're going to do. I'm going to go out. What's the best source of wire? I need. To, I don't want to spend a lot of money. I, I'm going to need a lot of wire for this. I'm going to need like, like 1,200 feet of of wire, right? Well, you're going to have to shop for that. But you may find you may find a place like Sears Roebuck. Yeah. You know, some place like that where or. I wouldn't go to Home Depot. They they charge an arm and a leg, but you might have to be kind of creative. Maybe a farm supply. Or so you yeah. see a farm supply that sells the electric fence wire. Yeah, I know, but I mean, I might just get something simple. I might, you know, it, it, I know it's not the optimal solution, but a lot of times you just buy a bunch of AC line cord. You know, you well, buy half feet. <laughs> well, you buy you buy half of that and You'd you say, split yeah, it out. Six hundred right? feet, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Ten cents uh, a foot. Uh, that's about sixty dollars worth, right? Not bad. Yeah. Uh, do that. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sure some of our listeners have some ideas. Send us some thoughts. Where should I buy the uh, the wire for my 160 meter inverted L and radials? Also, radials. What do you think? Insulated or uninsulated? I know this is a controversy. Well, are, are you going to bury them? I'm going to try to stick them into the dirt as much as I can. I'd go with the insulated. Insulated? Yeah. Or else they're all just going to get chewed up. Uh, plus, that saves me of having to strip yeah, <laughs> a yeah. thousand feet of yeah, baseline yeah. cord. <laughs> That'd be bad. All right. All right, so that's the antenna plan. In the meantime, I've been having a lot of fun on 40 meters. Like I said, lots of nice people, home brewers and anchorologists. You know what anchorologists are, people who study the boat anchors. Ooh. Anchorologists. Well, yeah. you know... I, I sent you a link about a nice linear amplifier that you could <laughs> You know, we got, we got hell on that. Pete, Pete was out scouring. There were a couple of things he sent. He sent me one was, uh, you know, a lot of guys on AM now are using these new Class E uh, transmitters. And I really thought it was cool because they're very modern solid-state transmitters and amplifiers. They put out three or 400 watts AM carrier, which is getting you close to the legal limit on AM. But um, and you could, but the guys are building them in sort of like old style rack mounted cabinets with, with a lot of meters. Meters, oh man, I got a, I got a few of those. I want to do that, meters. and it looks cool. I mean, one of the coolest things about the DX100 is that when you turn from receive to transmit, there is a kerchunk that you hear. All right, I wanted to do this. I'm going to play the kerchunk for you guys. Hold on. All right, I'm walking across the shack here. I hope you can hear it. Give me a thumbs up. Can you hear the, the static? Oh, yeah. All right. Now, this is the plate switch on the DX100. Listen carefully. Now, hear that? Yeah. Hold on. Chunk. Yeah. All right. You, you know the only thing you're missing, Bill? Right. You're, you're missing... I love that for chunk sound. Yeah, but you're missing the... the it makes it... Makes it sound like you're really transmitting. Yeah, you know what you're missing though is the 866 blue rectifiers that when you hit that plate switch, <laughs> they they glow. <laughs> That's what you're missing. Well, I got you know I I to have more of a visual effect there. I got the uh, I dragged out an old Ico uh, 465 um, scope or 435 scope Ico 435 oscilloscope that for some reason I've been keeping around all these years. And I'm going to use that as kind of a, a modulation monitor. I'm going to use a, a signal sampler circuit 
that our friend Alan, W2AEW, has worked up. He's got a nice uh, video of it on, on his YouTube channel. But uh, I'm going to get that going. And, man, I've been listening to 160 meters. 40 meters is really nice. Nice people. 75 has its problems. A strangeness to it. An eccentricity. Kind of a, I don't know. I wouldn't say it's the friendliest place in the world. And I think over time, the level of kind of technical expertise there has eroded. 160, it's like, it's like you go to 160 and it's even, it sounds even nicer than 40. It really is, it really does sound like, you know, top band, the gentleman's band. Every, every QSO I listen to, first of all, it doesn't seem crowded at all. It seems like a lot of wide open spaces. There seems to be one or two frequencies where the AM contacts are taking place. It seems like a very nice, very open group. You know, on 160, it seems often very kind of clickish or clannish. Like if you come on frequency, they're, they're asking you, like, well, who are you and why are you here talking to us? But it doesn't seem that way on, on, on 160. So I'm kind of looking forward to getting this antenna up in the air. And, um, you know, I, the other thing you mentioned, the, the simplicity, the, one of the attractions of the boat anchor radios, the old radios. And the DX100, by the way, is the is the radio that came that gave boat anchors their boat anchor name because you could use it as a as an anchor for a boat. Bernie City. <laughs> I know. A hundred pounds. One guy you, there's some real characters on, on 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 forty AM. One old guy told me that, that his 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 DX one hundred weighed a hundred pounds when he got it twenty years ago. But when he tried to lift it recently, he discovered it had increased to 200 pounds. <laughs> yeah. or, or, or the email you got from Grayson that said he's working on an R398, and he had to get his XYL and his son to help him turn it over <laughs> on the bench so he could work on it. <laughs> but by the way, well, you, know, you, could, you have to have a modulation monitor. I mean, that was standard fare in AM, you, so you, you're a splatter monitor, and I'm, I'm envisioning a small aluminum box with a couple of blue LEDs that's sampling the RF. So on voice peaks, these things will glow brighter, so it'll give you the feel of, like, oh, cool. vacuum rectifiers. Well, I have, I have an old Palomar Engineers SWR meter that had built into it a modulation monitor. There you go. And I'm going to rebuild that thing, and you could just listen to yourself. And But then I figured the ICO scope would also help with, oh, yeah. uh, with that. And there's an old trick, too. If you watch the plate current on a on a on an AM plate modulated AM rig, if you watch it, you can see that on voice peaks, if that if that plate current is starting to vary a little bit, that's a sign that you're approaching the uh, the upper limits, 100% modulation. modulation. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, but I you you mentioned I, I put up on the blog the the actual schematic of the DX100. It's beauty. It's simplicity. Yeah. It's easy to understand. Holy cow! There's you know there's a there's, a, there's you know there's a kind of Eight, six or eight tubes there. There's a lot of open spaces. Everything is very easy to understand. It's uh, it, I, I, I like this rig. It's I, great. I think I mentioned if you take away the power supply, just a few tubes. <laughs> I know. That's it. I know. It, it's and a lot of iron. Uh, the mod, the mod iron and all hey, that. Hey Bill, we're getting kind of long here. Don't forget the SCD. I guess that's right. It's time for uh, Shameless Commerce Division. Thank you for reminding me. We we uh, we missed last week. It just shows you that we're, we get get so into the technology, we forget completely about the uh, the commercial aspect. But you know, I've been taking Billy around visiting colleges. So yes. this reminds me yes. <laughs> there's, yes. a, there's a need for the Shameless Commerce Division. Um, 
listen, the, the best way you could help, if you think Amazon, think Solder Smoke. On the blog page, on Solder Smoke, www.soldersmoke.blogspot.com, in the upper right, you will usually see a link to an Amazon search box. Now, some guys have been reporting that it's hard to see. You don't see it if you're using uh, Internet Explorer. And I, I don't know why, but I noticed that too. However, if you run into this problem, you'll definitely see it there if you go to Google Chrome. A lot of guys are switching over to Google Chrome. And on the Google Chrome browser, our little uh, Amazon search box appears, no problem at all there. And if you're going to buy something, especially if you're going to buy some big dollar item, you know, uh, go ahead and, and search for it there. And it's just if you start the search there, if you plug in, oh, I don't know, um, some what's some expensive, you know, Spectrum Analyzer, yeah, yeah, Super Deluxe, yeah. you know, or um, you know, Tractor, John Deere yeah, Tractor, Ag Extra Ag Large, Agilent Spectrum Analyzer for thirty, Agilent, 3, something like bucks. that, yeah, there Cray, Cray Supercomputer, whatever it is that you're looking for, you plug it in there. And then you begin the search, and then the rest of your purchase is just like all your other Amazon purchases, except at the end, cha-ching, yeah. Bezos has to send us 5%. Yep, there you go. We will put that money to good use, and uh, we thank you uh, for your support, and it's great because all the money comes from Amazon. None of it comes from you. Everybody's happy. Even Amazon, yeah. I guess. You know, you just said something here. I wanted to share a story with you, Bill. Um, my last son, that's the $250,000 CNC <laughs> mechanical engineering guy. Yes. When when we went to the orientation, uh, the uh, <clears throat> moderators uh, said, uh, how many of you parents think that your child is going to get a four-year education? And everybody put their hand up, and she said, well, I'm just going to let you know, on average, it takes 5.7 years <laughs> to get out of here. And he, he, heart attack. <laughs> you know, heart att she said, just because of the class scheduling, you know, I guess there's so much stuff now that did you, it's hard to get to. She said, we occasionally have a student graduate in four years. She said, but on average, it's 5.7. So I don't know if you put that in your calculation, <laughs> but you're, you need to add that additional 1.7 years because it's probably going to happen. We might have to add some more shameless <laughs> yeah, comments yeah. division sessions here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, buy more stuff. Buy more stuff, yeah. I, I mean, People went pale. <laughs> they went pale in there, so don't be surprised. Oh, well. All right. Now, I guess we move on to a section. Thank you very much for reminding me about SCD. But I guess we're into a session now called a Miscellaneous Solder Smoke News. You and I have been discussing a bunch of stuff that's popped up. We, we were already almost in overtime. Gosh, we're talking a long time here. We're yeah. having a time here today, but we'll just go through this kind of quickly. I'll just mention a few things. Uh, we saw a story that a Raspberry Pi transmitter is now out there. Someone has figured out how to use a Raspberry Pi and stuff an entire transmitter and covering almost all modes and bands into the Raspberry Pi transmitter. This, of course, for me, is a version of a nightmare, you know? <laughs> and it just came to mind. I could just hear the contacts. Yeah, yeah, old man, the uh, trans I'm, I'm talking to you on a, on a Pi, and I'm listening to you on a dongle, and it's, it's working great. Yeah, so... I don't know. How do you react to that, Pete? Well, it's there. <laughs> you mean, how can you? You can't deny it. It's there. Now, is it good? I don't know. 
I, You're much. This just shows he's much more of an open-minded guy. <laughs> than I am. You know, it, it, it's, uh, it's going to show up, and you're going to hear people on the air saying, "Oh yeah, I'm talking to you on my pie too." Not just the pie, but the pie too. <laughs> All right. All right. I'm going to I'm going to continue to wallow in uh, luddite curmudgeonism. Luddite with one D. Thank you very yes. much. You know. Homebrew, hardware-defined, uh, analog, uh, discrete component. Menus are for restaurants, but, and pies are for dessert. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, Bill, just to take a second on that, <clears throat> I think one of the problems is in the analog world, we're we're pretty careful about bandpass filters, and we're careful about low-pass filters, and we're careful about interactions. I'm not so sure that some of the stuff that's just being tacked together really pays close enough attention to out-of-band signals and spurs. I mean, a guy's got a signal on the air, yeah, but 40 kilohertz away is another component, <laughs> you know, and two bands away is another component. So yeah. I, I, I just, you know, it's great that people are moving this, moving with the state of the art, but at the same time, you can't ignore some of the things that are very basic in in the analog world. You know, you would never think about putting a transmitter on the air without a low-pass filter. So I said, oh, don't worry, it's digital. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, all right, well, they're all moving into Raspberry Pis, and I'm moving back to DX100, there so there, there we go. go. All right. Okay. Our friend Armand sent me an, article, an alert about the QST article in the, the December issue of QST about the Elser Mathis Cup. I guess this might have been provoked by the all the talk about the Martian book and the movie, the Elster Mathis Cup, of course, the award that awaits to be claimed by the first radio amateur to establish two-way contact with the planet Mars. Um, good article in the December QST. The Elster Mathis Cup is still there. Um, and it, somebody wrote in, I think I might have mentioned this, that I have, and they asked, is that a map of Mars that we see on the shack wall at Soda Smoke headquarters? It is indeed I have a map of Mars here. It's a National Geographic map. Um, and somebody asked, why do you have it there? I said, well, I'm, in, I'm a contender for the Elsler Mathis Cup, and I want to know which way to point the beam. Um, the, uh, I, I also remember that the old man, you remember the old man, T-O-M, yeah. Hiram Percy Maxim. Maxim. Yeah. He didn't have a map. He had a globe. So I'm in good company here, and uh, I'm proud to have the map there, and we're hoping to be able to someday get the Elster Mathis Cup. I, 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 in the Solder Smoke book, I said that Billy and Maria might be uh, contenders for it. Also about QST, I noticed something about QST, something we were talking about. In the upper left-hand corner, it has ARRL, Advancing the Art and Science of Radio since 1914. There's another use of the art word. We talked about that. Good. The radio art. Very good. Like it. Uh, in, in this issue of QST, Pete, I thought you'd like this. There's a letter to the editor. Um, on the subject is drift and frequency offsets. And the guy is, is very nice. He says some nice things. He's referring to a September 2015 article in QST. It says here, but in the letter, the author, who is Ethan Blanton, KV8OJH, South Bend, Indiana, says, I do want to push back on comments like, quote, I have observed that some stations are not on frequency. The amateur bands are not channelized, and just because a station's transmit frequency does not end in an arbitrarily long string of zeros does not mean that he is off frequency. The author may be discussing two stations in a QSO that are not on the same frequency, which is not quite the same thing, but in general, 
an amateur station may transmit on any allowable frequency within the band. Yay! You tell yeah, him. You tell yeah. him. You tell him, Ethan. That's yeah. it, man. Enough of the channelization. Glad to see that in in QST. That's why God invented um, VFOs, right? That's right. Um, Nick Kennedy, we mentioned him, his interview on QSC, QSO Today, excellent stuff. And again, LT Spice Guide, check it out. One thing I mentioned, I think I mentioned, might have mentioned on the blog or on the podcast, but not recently, not long ago, um, kind of a fixture in the Washington, D.C., um, Virginia, Maryland radio community, Ed Walker, the, uh, the guy who ran a program on WAMU at American University called The Big Broadcast, passed away. Ed, Ed used to get on every Sunday night and play old radio shows, you know, Dragnet and uh, all those old shows from the, from the heyday of radio. And uh, he, he recently passed away. And um, I, when, I, didn't realize, I didn't realize until after he was gone that he was blind. Um, and then when I read his bio, I thought, wow, I bet you this guy was a ham. But I wasn't able to find anything. But then on the AM window, an excellent uh, you know, forum for discussion of all things AM and boat anchor, uh, somebody noted that he was a ham. His call sign was N3HFT. So, uh, so really good stuff. Oh, I forgot to mention, because my list got, when I printed it out, it got cut off. Homebrew to homebrew. Yeah. We've had a number of really cool homebrew to homebrew QSOs. Hold on a second. My, my notes here are failing me. But we, uh, we had great QSOs with AC9JQ, Dean, Dean N3FJZ, Rick, of course, you and I spoke, homebrew to homebrew, and then uh, uh, with, a, with a fella in the U.K. who was running homebrew gear. So we're up to four, I think, HB to HB5. No, because then Dean spoke with to Rick. Rick. Yeah. So that was, that was fantastic. That was great fun. Anyway, we're running low on time here, Pete. It's time for time to open the mailbag. Yeah. Do you have any, uh, any other miscellaneous news that you want to no, cover? No, no. I think, I think we've got a jam-packed show here today. Lots of developments. All right. The one letter I wanted to highlight is something you mentioned. We got an email from uh, our friend Grayson over there in Ankara, Turkey. Call sign Tango Alpha 2 Zulu Golf Echo. KZ, also U.S. call sign KJ7UM. Uh, Grayson's an American over there and a real anchorologist, the author of um, Hollow State Radio Design. Thermotrons. Thermotrons, a great book. I mean, Look them up. I mean, get the book. It's it's great fun. I'm, I'm I find myself looking at it more and more often now that I'm getting back into the boat anchors. But um, Grayson writes to to you and up to both of us. He says, uh, um, "I've been following your latest solder smoke posts with a lot of joy. Glad to see you have seen the filament light." <laughs> I, I had been referring to an article in uh, in uh, Electric Radio, a great magazine about old radios. And in the November 1996 issue of Electric Radio, there's an article by Ed Fong, WB6IQN, and it's entitled, Have We Come a Long Way, 40 Years of Radio Evolution? And Ed, in that article, examines whether we've actually been improving receivers with all of our modern gizmos and uh, digital uh, techniques, or whether things are worse than they were when we started. But anyway, Grayson writes, the article is a classic. I read it many times. It is as valid today as it was in 1996. There is an almost identical article by By Goodman, W1DX, in a 1980s article in QST, lamenting the problems with the then solid-state gear. 
I acquired three R390As over the last year and am working and working and working to restore them. They are a real work of art, but tough to work on. I have to get help from my wife and my son just to turn the darn things over on the bench. <laughs> a real boat anchor. He says, I much prefer the 75S, 32S series, but they are in storage in the U.S. There are about 1,734 known mods to the R390A to, quote, improve it, unquote. I selected seven of them. But, um, let's see, what else? I got, I've got another page here. Um, but lately I got frustrated and then put them aside for a while to build a 3-400Z amplifier. Yes, yes. Watch your reaction there, my friend. Yes, nice. you got to watch your reaction. Nice. Oh, nice. Listen to what he's saying. Nice, too. He's a member of the QRP Hall of Fame. <laughs> I always wanted to build an amp with a 3-400Z in it. I always wanted to build one. So, oh, but keep it at 5 watts. Okay, <laughs> okay right. <laughs> you can run the 3-500Z. But, by the, but turn the input way down. By the way, I had two R390As uh, in my lifetime, and and one of them, I, it, it just was driving me nuts. And they have a thing called an Oldham, O L D H A M Oldham coupler, and it's a mechanical coupling off the tuning mechanism that tunes the PTO. What I didn't know that thing was loose, so no matter how much you turned the dial, the mechanical dial would, would turn, but the VFO would not tune, and I. I chased that down for almost two months, and and again, it was every time you wanted to work on something, you need you got hernia city to lift that thing over. So they are a All mechanical right. nightmare. We got to talk about this. I'm reading from Ed Fong's article. As one tunes the main tuning knob, the front end, the mixer, the local oscillator, and the second mixer. Are, and all associated circuitry are mechanically trapped. Gear driven. As you tune the main knob, all the other tuned circuits in the radio are mechanically retuned for optimum performance. If one looks into an R390A, it is more complex than a switch Swiss watch. Yeah. Here's, I love this part. There is a funny story that goes along with that. I heard that when the Soviets seized an R-390A in the mid-1960s, they were elated until they looked inside. Upon looking at the overwhelmingly complex cams and gears, they decided their time and efforts could be spent elsewhere. The Soviets copied many U.S. products for their military, but you will never find a copy of the R-390A. Anyway, so Grayson is, he says here, um, He's, he's, he, after he writes to us, he says, back to mangling aluminum for a while. By the way, you and Pete have done a marvelous job with the podcast, even though it has been mostly boring solid state <laughs> Keep up the nice work. I love it anyway, Grayson. Good to hear from you, Grayson. Thanks for that. That was a, that was a, nice, a nice message. Pete, what else we have? I think we're there. Oh, we're done. You want to mention about Ron? Oh, yes, that's right. We, got a, we, we also got a nice email. From Ron, G4GXO. That's we have, the Belforn uh, guy. The, the Belforn guy. And we have shamelessly tried to drag him in to the bitter controversy over the SI5351 <laughs> face noise. I mean, these are the things that wars are started yeah, over. You know that? Yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll say, what, what, what's, what was the cause of the conflict? And they'll say there was a disagreement about the phase noise of the SI5351. Yeah, yeah. People got quite worked up. Yeah. Anyway... Our position to Ben has been that it's pretty good. Others have said it's pretty stinko. But uh, we've asked people to weigh in, and Ron built a rig with 
the the uh, the controversial SI5351 and found that it worked quite satisfactorily. Yes. I don't know if we posted his message, but maybe we will. Yeah. But another data point, another satisfied customer. Yeah, lots lots more data points are appearing, and I think that's the important part. You know what? Just put it in the radio and forget about what people say about face noise, and then you decide for yourself. And this is what Ron said at the end of his his message. In a very British way, he said, give it a go. Give it a go. We'll end with that. You bet. Pete Giuliano, thank you very much for another exciting adventure. You bet. Of Sot Smoke, the podcast. 7-3 from the left coast. 7-3 from Northern Virginia. Thanks, Pete. Bye-bye. Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported. And there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at CafePress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!